Amen. I love when I get the sermon before the sermon. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, Jesse hit all my uh, high points, so if I repeat anything, uh, you need to hear it anyway. Uh, so in our uh, t- walking through Mark, I want to remind you where the context is. We are in the final week of Jesus' life, the final week of Jesus' ministry. Last week, we looked at the preparation where he sent the disciples ahead. The upper room was prepared. They went out and bought the supplies. Judas was preparing behind the scenes to betray Jesus. And Jesus foretells uh, not only his suffering, but also his betrayal, and even worse, at the hands of one of those who were at the table. But yet, for their sake, for their benefit, he still moves forward to institute this ordinance or sacrament. We're not going to get into that this morning. Uh, Both of the terms are valid. Depends on how you define them. Um, But we're going to look at one of the the, the two main uh, sacraments within the church. Out of baptism and this morning, the Lord's Supper. And so because we have never done this, uh, if you've gone through our membership class, if you read through our membership document, we have a small doctrine on the Lord's Supper. We explain it every week as we take it before intercessory prayer. But I think it's important that we spend the time this morning to look at it uh, textually, how it is in our text, thematically how it is in other texts without Scripture, and and, uh, the issues historically surrounding it, and it helps us to understand how meaningful it is to us. But most importantly, this is the most important meal that a Christian will eat. And that says a lot coming from an Italian. And it is not by coincidence or maybe it is by coincidence, whichever one it is, that we drink a lot of wine and eat a lot of bread, hopefully not in that order, sometimes in that order. Um, and so this is for the church, the meal that Christ instituted, that Christ commanded. And it is fundamental in our doctrine, and it continues as an essential practice and a necessary means of grace within the body. And um, so this week I was blessed by my study. I always love coming back to these essential doctrines that can almost become rudimentary, and then you begin to study them again, and you go through the scriptures, and you read the historians, and you read the confessions, and you read the commentators, and you're like, I do not have enough awe and wonder that I get to participate in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in my study this week, a couple of really helpful resources if you want to read further. Uh, Richard Barcellus's book, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace, is fantastic. Um, also really uh, enjoyed Keith Matheson's The Lord's Supper and uh, Answers to Common Questions. So I got a Baptist and a Presbyterian to get my uh, bases covered, and they, they both agreed. Uh, so, but Keith Matheson's book is really helpful if you have some basic questions. He's, he's great at taking complex things and uh, distilling them down. So uh, both of those, if you have desire to study further, I encourage you to dig into those. But um, because this, su- this um, sermon is going to be a bit like me going on vacation, and it's like my, my suitcase, I try to pack as much into it as I can uh, because it might be cold, it might be hot, I might need this, I might need that. So uh, this is one of those, those, those sermons. Uh, hopefully it's just enough, but there's a lot in here, so we're going to jump right in. Open your Bibles, and we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, this is my body. And he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you. May your name be hallowed. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. May we, as citizens of your kingdom, live fully in our citizenship that is secured for eternity and walk around daily as citizens on earth, sojourners and exiles, messengers, ambassadors, heralds of the good news of Jesus Christ. And may our study of his table, the realization of his body and blood given for us, may it embolden us, May it encourage us. May it give us confidence in him to stand firm on his word, to know that nothing can separate us, to know that his spirit guides us, teaches us, and reminds us. And may the spirit of truth give us understanding, give us discernment, give us conviction to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ in this service, in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in in our jobs, until the day that he returns. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first thing I want you to see as we look at this text, I want you to watch the verbs. As often when we read scripture, follow the verbs, follow the energy here. Look at the first two verses. And as they were eating, here's the context, all of the action here is done by Jesus for the disciples' sake. This helps us to understand the purpose of this text. He took bread, and it is implied here, he took bread for them, and he blessed it for them, broke it for them, gave it to them. Take this, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He is teaching and he is confirming the significance of what he is explaining in his actions. And the meal is not just any old Passover. There is something greater. And by the master of the feast, he is showing them, this is what I'm doing and why. And this is for you. So first thing. As they were eating. Now we don't have time to get into it, but in the Passover meal, there were four stages. Each of them have a a different element of the meal, and each would finish with a cup of wine. And so this could take several hours, depending on if your long-winded uncle would would, would recount the story of the Exodus. And so they were were used to this. This was was a process. They got comfortable. They leaned down on their their left elbow, and they ate with with their right hand, and this was story time. This was the reminder of our people centuries ago, our forefathers who were enslaved in Egypt, our forefathers who were oppressed by Pharaoh and his people, and our God, the maker of heaven and earth, who delivered us, who brought down plagues upon Egypt, who put to shame all the false gods, who destroyed all of the firstborn, man and beast, and who passed over us 
because of the sacrificial lamb. And who brought us through the exodus out of Egypt. Took us through the wilderness. Providing cloud by day and fire by night. Manna from heaven. Water from a rock. All of these details of the exodus would be recounted as they ate and as they drank. And this is the stage. Don't forget the context. We cannot understand the Lord's Supper apart from Passover. We cannot just read back into it with Western eyes and and as most people do, what does this mean to me first? There is greater significance than just what, what we are used to. And so when we see what Jesus is doing here, why he does it, when he does it, how he does it, there's much for us to glean from this. So before we even get into the bread and the wine, this is something that was consistent in worship from the beginning, from the founding of God's people, from the very forefather going all the way back to Genesis 14. That'll be up on the screen, but if you can get there, get there quickly. Genesis 14, where Abraham wins a little skirmish. The king of Salem, his name is Melchizedek. We studied him in depth in, uh, in, in Hebrews. Uh, he's also a priest of the Most High. What does he do when Abraham comes to him? This is how he shows welcoming. What does he do? And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. When a king brings you bread and wine, that's a good thing. That is a time of celebration. And as king and as priest, he brings this out. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, professor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first worship service of the nation of Israel. Jesus' forerunner, the, the order of his priesthood, Melchizedek, institutes the blessing of Abraham, this blessed meal with what? Bread and wine. These are common elements. This, this common theme stretches throughout the Old Testament uh, and really finds its fulfillment in the time of Christ. And so when, Jesus, when they were eating, Jesus took the food and blessed it, just like Melchizedek blessed, Jesus also blessed. As a priest, as a king, he blesses those who come to him. And there's a, there's a common blessing that was said during Passover and is still said to this day by uh, observant Jews. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the world, who brings forth bread from heaven. There's a longer version of this, but this is the gist. Blessed are you. Lord, our God, king of the world, who brings forth bread from heaven. This was to be the reminder that when they took this bread, only their God, only Yahweh, only the God of Israel could bring bread from heaven. And I hope when the disciples heard this, as when we hear this, we should remember John 6. Turn there. John 6, the, con- the context of John 6 is when Jesus multiplies the bread and feeds the 5,000. But afterward is this amazing discourse about the bread of life. And so before we even get to the bread and Jesus calling it his body, Jesus has already explained this this to them. And it was so incendiary at the time that the Pharisees are up in arms. They are furious that Jesus would dare call himself bread from heaven. He would dare compare himself to the Father. So this is not something new that he's introducing to them. Picking up in verse 47 of John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The first thing we must see about this bread, 
for there to be any efficacy at all, there must be belief. There must be an inherent work of the Holy Spirit, a possession of eternal life in order to believe. If you believe is the intent here, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Jesus is comparing himself to the bread in the wilderness, to the manna, but he is greater than the manna. Just like in this meal, he is comparing himself to the bread, but something greater. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. His flesh, his earthly body given. Those who partake in faith, they will live forever. This is eternal life. All of this is wrapped up in what Jesus is saying here as he sits down with his disciples. So he, he blesses it. He brings forth bread, continuing with this, this imagery of God providing living bread for his people that they may live. And he takes it and he breaks it. Um, basically, he's tearing off little pieces. And if you ever have eaten bread in my home with, with pasta, sometimes we cut it, sometimes we just rip off pieces. Or if you're like my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, she would take the loaf and just rip off pieces and dip it in the olive oil and, and the red wine vinegar. It's amazing. Um, and this is a very communal, very Eastern way of doing things. I'm going to rip off pieces and hand it to you. We're getting our hands dirty together. We're licking our fingers together. That's how you should eat. And so this is what Jesus does. So far, so good. Now here's where it gets tricky. Here's where confusion can happen. Here's where uh, if you conflate the literal and the symbolic, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Because he says, take, this is my body. Now, do we read the Bible literally? Absolutely. When it is literal. So here's where the confusion happens. This is there's much debate and speculation over this, especially throughout the centuries. So we're going to talk about what this is and what this is not. And first and foremost, this may be the only time I will ever do this, um, I'm going to use Bill Clinton's example and try, we have to de determine what is, is. If you're not old enough to remember that, that wasn't for you. So, this is my Bible. I'm holding it in my hand. But if I take a picture, this is my Bible. Which one do I mean? If I'm playing with my nephews and they say, this is a dragon, this is lava, what is, is. Which one is it? But before we put ourselves into the text and before we, we try to determine from our Western minds what did the disciples hear? What did they think? This is how we have to interpret the text. Remember what type of meal this is. This is a meal that was filled with symbolism. This was a meal that was vivid within, with, with imagery. The bitter herbs in, their, in their, their bitter experience in Egypt. The bread of affliction that they ate in the wilderness. You think when the disciples ate 
When Jesus explained this is the bread of affliction or one of the rabbis or the, typically it was the, the, the master of the house or the, the head of the house. When they say this is the bread of affliction, did they really think that the bread that they were eating turned into the same bread that the Israelites were eating in the wilderness? Of course not. They know the, the, the symbolism of what it represents. They expected a symbolic meal. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking, he's taking familiar elements and he's giving them greater significance. He's giving new symbols to the, these, these familiar things that they would do every year. So a couple other things. Um, this is my body. The Greek terminology here is helpful. This is not sarx, the Greek word for flesh, material. That's what Jesus uh, used in John 6. I gave up my flesh so that you might have eternal life. I put my, my, my physical body on the cross for you. This is soma, the word for self, for body, my whole person. This is my whole person. I am giving you me. This is greater than just flesh. So if you have an, ex an expressly literal interpretation, uh, it can get problematic. Um, so here's what we need to see. First thing, his human flesh was given first in order that we might have his whole person. His human flesh was given up so that we might have all of him, human and divine. This is my body, truly man, truly God, if you partake of this bread in faith, you will live because you live in me, all of me. You're not just eating a part of me. You're not just separating me into little wafers. And we'll get into that more in a few moments. But I think uh, bringing this together, Luke is helpful. So Luke chapter 22 Mark's account of the supper, just like Matthew's, is relatively short. Luke, writing last, has uh, the, the hindsight of study and the uh, influence of Paul. And so we're going to look at Luke because I think he helps bring this together a little bit. So he brings in the process and symbolism together under the context of Passover. So picking up in Luke 22, verse 15. And he said to them, I earnestly desired to eat this Passover... He is giving it in the context of Passover, and there's something special about this one. With you before I suffer. So this Passover is associated with his suffering. Not that passage yet. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Notice the emphasis on the kingdom here. This is a, a kingdom reality in a present meal. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. On your behalf, this is for you. This is important because Mark doesn't include these words. Do this in remembrance of me. And we already saw the action in Mark is for the sake of the disciples. But Jesus has this important statement. All of this, this bread, my body, what I'm doing for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a command. This is an imperative to the people of God. I have given you my body. I've taken on flesh. Gone to the cross for your sins. 
I am reigning on high. Do this so that you don't forget, so that you don't grow cold, so this does not become mundane. This communicates past, present, and future work of Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. Look back to what I've done. This is my body. There is a present reality in this. And do it until it is fulfilled in my kingdom. We look forward to the consummation of all things. The past, present, and future ministry of Christ proclaimed and declared at his table. So going forward, when the disciples would gather for the Passover... As they, as they continued to call it, now they have this fulfilled imagery. And so do we. Going forward, every time we come to the table, we are now united with Israel, delivered from Egypt. We're now united with the disciples and the church throughout the ages, remembering the work of Christ, enjoying the benefit of union with him now and looking forward to his kingdom when we have it in fulfillment. This is not an ordinary meal. So as he goes on, takes the bread, now he takes a cup, verse 23. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. A couple things here quickly. This was not his cup, but theirs. His cup would come that next day. His cup the cup that he prayed for this very evening to be taken from him, the full wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of his own. He took his cup so that theirs might be possible. His cup led to their cup. The cup that he gave them, I've done this for you. They don't even fully understand it yet. That he would sweat blood thinking about what it would mean to be tortured and mocked and take the full penalty for their sin that they might enjoy this cup, that we might enjoy this cup. His cup of divine wrath becomes our cup of blessing. That is what this meal is to remind us of. So they all drank it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So let's kind of work through each of these elements here. This is my blood of the covenant. So blood, if you've read the Old Testament, it's everywhere. The, the um, blood of grapes or fruit of the vine is synonymous with blood. Um, often it is God's judgment uh, often wine is uh, abundance, but when it is God's judgment, when it is, when it is violence, when it is death, it often has association with atonement. And so when you see blood, when, when this imagery comes in, it's, it's drawing back to the blood covering, just like the lamb in Egypt covered over your, your doorposts and protected you from the angel of death. Just like you, were, you, you live because of that blood, this blood, that covenant brought you out of Egypt. This new covenant in my blood is something so much more spectacular. And they knew the symbolism, and Jesus is drawing on what is familiar with them, or, or to them. And so from Luke and from Matthew, we get the complete picture. This is my blood of the covenant. From Luke, poured out for you. 
Matthew, for the forgiveness of sins. This is the complete picture of the cup that we drink. It is not just Jesus' blood shed for no reason. It is Jesus' blood poured out for you. If you are in Christ Jesus, the blood of the spotless lamb, the blood of the Son of God covers you. And it doesn't just cover you to make you kind of good. It covers you to give you full forgiveness of sins. This is complete. This is perfect. Never to be revoked, never to be lost, never to be lessened. My blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all declare this in different aspects. There's one thing that, that they declare in unison. This is the blood of a new covenant. Israel was a covenant people. They knew that God made agreements with them that he did not make with other nations. That he called them his people. That, they would be, that he would be their God. Not because they were great or mighty or any of that, but because he loved them. Because he showed them his favor. Because he wanted to bless them so that he would be glorified. All of that is brought into this new covenant. But this new covenant is so much more. Because the old covenants, they had mediators that were fallen. Noah and Abraham and David and Moses. All fallen. All falling short. All temporary mediators. Looking forward to the final mediator. And what covenant is this? It is the new covenant. And we spent some time here in Hebrews, but I want to go back there. So Hebrews chapter 8, which references Jeremiah 31. But the writer of Hebrews puts it in its context. So I want to read all of this, starting in verse 6, Hebrews chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. My body, my blood. The, the promises, the uh, implications, and the benefits are going to be quoted here from Jeremiah. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for a second. That's why Jesus came. The blood of bulls and goats, as the writer of Hebrews will get into the next chapter, they can never fully atone because you got to keep offering it. You need one final sacrifice. You must, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You must have that. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why did he have to come? Why did they need a new covenant? Because, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Jeremiah says they broke the covenant. But I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. He let them go into exile, and they were oppressed for years. This was the mark of their covenant breaking. But now something new is coming. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. There is something new about this covenant. They were to, they were to have the, the, the law written on these man-made tablets. They were to remember them. They were to have them before their eyes. Man writes on what man makes, but God writes on what he makes. I will put my laws into their minds. 
I will in such a way with my Holy Spirit put what I desire of them in their minds so that they must, they will, they can obey me. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. This is the mark of the new covenant. If you are in the new covenant in Christ, he will give you his spirit. He will put his law in your mind. He will give you a new heart and write it on your heart. You won't have to say, Where is Jesus? You will know the master's voice. Amen. Amen. From the least to the greatest, everyone in the covenant will know him. And if you are in the covenant, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the, this is the covenant, the covenant of Jeremiah 31, that Jesus is showing is being fulfilled in their midst. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready, ready to vanish away. He is bringing in a new covenant era. And it is through his blood which is poured out for many. This is not exhaustive. This is, not a, this is, this is blood that actually accomplishes something. If you are covered with his blood, you are, you are his. There is no such thing as Christ's blood being shed for you and you rejecting him. This is blood for many. It is not exhaustive but representative. For the many who are his. Going back to chapter 10, verse 45 of Mark, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is an allusion and a fulfillment to Isaiah 53, which we read last week. But always good to read Isaiah 53 when we look at the uh, substitution and the sacrificial atonement of Christ. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The blood of the covenant poured out for the many. If you are here today and your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you are the many. His blood poured out for you. You feast. This is an imperative and an encouragement. Feast on the bread of life. Be nourished in your Savior. Take him completely. Amen. And every time we approach the table, we have that reminder. And we do that until he returns. And truly, so he gives them a, a glimpse of this. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Remember our conversation about the last things. This and these being in the, in the immediate future. That and those being far off. He is referring to that day. In chapter 13, the day that would, would follow the tribulation, the day of his return, the day when the clouds would get dark, and the day when he would come for his elect, that day, that day will come like a thief in the night. Don't fall asleep. Be awake. I am coming for you. And that day, when, I, when all things are, consu are consummated, we will feast again. We will drink 
we will eat, we will celebrate, we will rejoice when I am united with my bride. And I won't drink it again because I am apart from my bride. Our bridegroom has gone. He has prepared the wedding home. He is assembling the feast. He is inviting the guests. And he is waiting to drink again until we return. There is a beautiful anticipation with us, but also for our Lord, who does this for us, for his glory. And he tells them, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it with you. Because you are mine, I am covenanting with you, and this is my promise to you. There are a lot of beautiful symbolism here. On that day when I will drink it new in the kingdom of God. When he comes, there will be a new creation. The kingdom of God fulfillment that we saw in Luke. Um, I was going to go back there, but we don't need to. You can look back at Luke 16 through 18 where he mentions twice. I will not eat again until the fulfillment of the kingdom. I will not drink again until I come in my kingdom. The Lord's Supper is a taste of future promised glory to its citizens. This beautiful already not yet picture of it is yours. I am guaranteeing that it is yours. But you have not yet fully grasped it. Every time we come to the table, it is to be a reminder. Glory awaits us. Feasting awaits us. Union with our bridegroom awaits us in its fullness and in its splendor. This is how we should approach the table. So here's what the text says. Now I do want to look at this historically for a moment because this outside of the Protestant Reformation, this is the greatest division within the church. It actually happened in the Protestant Reformation. Now, Rome had completely bastardized the table, and we'll get there in just a moment. But the reformers could agree on everything else, but it was this one issue that they took such passion and, and, and zeal and conviction over that they would almost go to war with one another over the details. So, I'm going to give you some broad strokes of the battle. Also, I think this is still an issue for many. Most people don't think about it. And if you don't think about it, I don't need you to really understand the debates. But what I do want you to understand is the importance. I want you to understand that this is not a light thing for the church. So let's put all this together. Number one question we dealt with earlier, is this the literal body and blood of Christ? Hopefully, uh, you understood by just my quick explanation that it is not. What we get there is one of the main things that abhorred the reformers. That you in the, in the Roman Catholic Church would say that this is the body and blood of Christ. The literal body and blood. The process of transubstantiation. That is not a gender defense. That is a theological doctrine that says that these these elements, they change in substance. When the priest gets up and says, hoc es corpus meum, this is my body, sounds like hocus pocus. That's where we get it from. That's literally where we get hocus pocus from. They would say in Latin, hoc es corpus meum, this is my body. They were, they were, they were casting spells to make a regular piece of bread 
and a regular cup turn into the literal body and blood of Christ. This is why it is so ridiculous. Because every week, Christ must die again. He must suffer again. It is a mass or massacre where his blood must flow each week because what he did on the cross was not enough. This is the most extreme in transubstantiation. Now, Luther agreed, would bang his hand on the table, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body, this is my body. And so he lightened it up a little bit. So because he didn't want to be with Rome, he knew that was ridiculous that the body and, uh, and, and, and blood could be found literally in the cup and the bread. So Luther came up with what we call consubstantiation, meaning that the body of Christ, the physical earthly body of Christ, is there somehow. Luther liked to use the words under. So it's kind of like you peek under the bread and there's a little bit of Jesus there. No one really knows how that, how that works. So if you have this ultra-literal approach to it, you think Jesus, who in his divinity is omniscient, is, is omnipresent, is without limit, but in his humanity, he reigns as the second Adam. He is sitting on the throne of God, and every week he's got to come and, and, and slit his wrists so that they can take the mass. This is ridiculous. So we've got to be careful in our literal interpretation. So here's what I want you to hear. This is a meal of faith, not of forms. It is a meal of faith, not of forms. That's why we can have a cup, we can have a bowl, we can have leavened bread, we can have unleavened bread, we can have little cups, we can, we can have wine, we can, we can have juice. This is a meal of faith taken in corporate communion. This is not a meal of form, so we don't have to get all bent out of shape of exactly what is going on and be crazy like the, 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 the Catholic priests when they would spill the, the, the wine because it's the blood of Christ, they would lick it off the floor so that not one of his, drop, of his blood would be lost. Or if they drop a wafer, they would, have to, they, would, they would pick it up and guard it and bring it in a processional um, back to the offertory box. Yeah, this is, this is the crazy practice when you take... Uh, this completely out of uh, context, and we'll get there later. So that's the extreme view, that there is way too much importance on these elements. But then the extreme on the other side was the, the um, memorial view, the kind of Zwinglian view where uh, this is just a, a memory and nothing else. There is no means of grace here. There is, there is no real benefit. Um, it's just a solemn memory. And so there are many who inherit that tradition today. That's why they take it infrequently. Um, Baptist, Methodist, uh, if, you, if, if it's not that big of a deal, if there's nothing going on here, if there's no real benefit for the body, then it's, it's kind of like, you know, your, your Advent play or whatever it is. It's something we do a couple times a year um, just because we are supposed to, but we don't really know why. But is there something else? Is this meal... That Jesus went to such length to bring the symbolism together. The, the synoptic gospel writers brought in all this detail. Is this symbolic meal to confirm and to proclaim the new covenant? The new covenant in the person and work of Christ. And to confer blessing on those who take it. 
This is John Calvin's view, and I think uh, this view is most consistent with Scripture. That there is a temporal meal. Let's not get it confused. This is real bread. This is real wine. Nothing mystical happens here. But there is something spiritual going on beyond it. And there is a spiritual reality that we proclaim until Christ returns. Um, Our confession, the London Baptist Confession, summarizes Calvin and Westminster in this kind of reformed thought really well. Here's what it says, and I'll translate for you along the way. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet carnally and corporately, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. Clear? Um, what they're saying, no, you can stay in the first one, is that there's an, there's an outward process. These are visible elements, and, and in this, you are doing something visibly, but there's, there's something spiritually, inwardly going on by faith. It's, it's not carnal, it's not, corp, it's not corporeal, meaning in your body, but spiritually. You receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. This is what the table represents. Keep going. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. What that means is as real as the bread and the blood and and the cup that you are drinking are in front of your eyes, Christ is with you. Christ is here. He is, he will never leave you, never forsake you. He'll be with you to the end of the age. There is in some way we can't possibly understand, not in his physical human body, but in his divine presence, in the confirmation of his Holy Spirit. When his saints are gathered, when we go to the table, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. There is something going on that is beautiful, that is encouraging, that is nourishing. More on that in a moment. So I want to get into further explanation here in 1 Corinthians. So if, if you're going to look at the Lord's Supper, so you're going to turn there in 1 Corinthians 11, um, this is the most exhaustive passage, which is also interesting. This is the earliest passage that speaks of the Lord's Supper. This was written 10 years before Mark, the earliest gospel. So I'm going to focus on 23 through 29, but, but one of the things I want you to mention if you, or notice, if you look at this whole passage in its context, verse 17 through 34, one thing is repeated five times. Come together. Come together. This is a meal that is for the gathered body of Christ. This is so associated with the, with the body um, gathering that it is a meal of unity. It is a meal of fidelity or faithfulness. It is a meal of, of, of order. And it is to mark the gathering of God's people. It is also, and we can't get into all of the craziness that was going on in Corinth, but if you read 17 through, through 22, this meal is a guard against division. This meal is a guard against partiality. This is a time where the church proclaims male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. We all come to the table. We all eat the same. We all drink the same. No one is full and with, while someone else is hungry. No one is drunk. We come in order and we come equally before the cross. It's this, this beautiful picture at the table. 
And that was in, and so what was going on in Corinth was a mess, and Paul is writing this as a correction. This is in contrast to what was going on in Acts. The, the verse that we have painted over there in our fellowship hall, Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. This is the life of the church. I say all the time, if Christianity becomes illegal tomorrow, the government seizes our building and we are not allowed to, to meet publicly. This is what we continue to do. Doctrine, the apostles' teaching, fellowship of the saints, the breaking of bread and prayer. This is what has marked the church throughout the ages. This is what the church will continue to do. And so Paul says, I receive this from the Lord. What I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And so he recounts everything that we've just seen. Paul receives it from Christ. Christ gave it to him to command to the churches. This is not optional in the life of the believer. Paul, we, we learn from all the Corinthians' mistakes on what we should be doing in the household of the Lord. But um, here's what I want you to focus on. Verse 26. Everything else we've seen, 23 through 20. 25, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is important. For as often. It gives us exhortation for repetition. Acts 20, verse 7. This was the pattern of the local church on the first day of the week, Sunday, when they were gathered together to break bread. Every meal to the early church was a proclamation of the Lord's death and resurrection. Want to know what it was like to meet with the church in the early days? They gathered on the first day. They, they, they broke bread. They drank wine. And Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. They took communion, and Paul preached all day until midnight. You're welcome. <laughs> Give me enough bread and wine. I will preach all day. This is the gathering of the saints, remind our, being reminded of the body and blood of Christ and proclaiming the word for his people week in and week out. One of the earliest writings that we have of, of church practice, the Didache, the teaching of the apostles, states that the church met every week to approach the table. Every week they broke bread and they drank wine, reminding themselves of what Christ had done. For as often as you do it, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he turns. It is preaching. It is proclamation. As I was, you know, we were preparing for the decision to go to the Lord's table every week, this verse kept ringing in my head. How often do I want to proclaim Christ? We preach the word every week. This is a visible proclamation. And with it, the words of institution are the gospel themselves. Calvin believed this so heartily. He, he preached almost every day of the week in his, in his ministry in Geneva. He said you should take uh, the Lord's table at least once a week. He wanted to do it at every service. Um, didn't happen because of the uh, local authorities at the time. Whole other issue. But this gospel proclamation to proclaim his death, as we've said before, the death of Christ is shorthand for all the events his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It is a proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you take at the table, you proclaim he is fully God. He is fully man. 
He has laid down his life on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins, his blood instituting a new covenant, and we have union in him and with each other. That is what we are proclaiming every time we approach the table. And then there's the warning that happens in 27 through 29. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the body and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This cannot be any other meal. This cannot be just mere uh, bread and wine. Because there are real consequences if you take it in an unworthy manner. It is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be overlooked. It is not to be abused. Just like there are real benefits. I'm going to look at one chapter earlier. So go to 1 Corinthians 10. So there's the warning. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. There shouldn't be division among you. Uh, there, make sure you are in Christ. These, these kind of warnings that we give every week before approaching the table. But there are also real benefits. And so our participation in the body of Christ, being united to him, should inform the practice of Christ's body, the church. So it's interesting that this passage we're going to look at here comes a chapter before chapter 11. Paul assumes that you know this when you're reading chapter 11. So here's where we get our application for the church. What does this mean for the church, for believers? Chapter 10, verse 16. This is in the context of idolatry. Contrasting the table that they approach versus the pagan feasts that were seen all around them. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Let's stop there. The cup of blessing. The same cup that Jesus talks about, Paul calls it a cup of blessing. What is going on here? Everything that it represents, Christ's blood, his atonement for sins, the cup of wrath he took on our behalf, benefits those who believe. It is a means of grace. There is actual blessing in taking of the cup. There is spiritual blessing in Christ in a way that we can't see or understand Paul does not call it an ordinary cup, but a cup of blessing. So much so that when the apostates in Hebrews 6 walked away, they were guilty of partaking of the heavenly gift and crucifying Christ again. This cup is a cup of blessing. And what do we do? We participate it. In the blood of Christ. This Greek word, koinonia, fellowship where we get communion, same word. It's got this, this range of meaning, participation, fellowship, communion. This is what goes on. We actually participate. We actually have fellowship and communion with Christ and one another in this cup. Now, yes, the real cup is Christ's blood shed on the cross, covered for us. But in these weekly cups, something is going on here. I like how B.B. Warfield explains this when he says that the sacrifice is, is given before the meal. This is what would happen in these Jewish feasts. But at the meal, you enjoy the benefits of the sacrifice. You don't have to actually shed the blood at the table to know that the lamb or the goat that was sacrificed for your sins is actually a covering. 
This meal reminds us of the reality. This meal is not the sacrifice. It is the, it is the benefit, the enjoyment of the sacrifice. Just like you don't have to touch the sun to benefit from its light and its heat. It does not have to be body and blood to receive the benefit because that has already been accomplished on the cross. We are participating. We have communion with Christ. This table is first and foremost our communion, our fellowship, our participation with Christ. But also, notice this is in the plural, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? This is communal. We are united to Christ and to one another. This is beautiful unity within the body. This word, our English word communion, to have a common union. We are union, united to Christ and to one another. And we, are, we participate in the spiritual blessings of Christ as citizens of his kingdom, as saints of his righteousness. For an example, uh, so he goes on the uh, cup of blessing. Similarly, the bread that we break is it not participation in the body of Christ. Same idea, cup and bread. Blessing, participation. Verse 18 is kind of his explanation here. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Consider them. Those who ate the sacrifice, they receive the benefits of the blood sacrifice because they participated Exodus 24 explains this. If we, if we obey and we participate in faith, we will receive all the blessings of this covenant. So, a couple last things. Does this make us more or less in Christ if we don't partake of the table? No. You are not, if you are under church discipline or we can't meet for a week or you're out of town, does that make you not in Christ anymore? No, this is not a salvific issue going on here. Not, neither does it make you more in Christ. You're not more sanctified um, in, you know, than, than, than someone else from, from, from week to week. But what does happen, and those of you who are here week in and week out when we pray together and we take the supper together, we are nourished and we are carried along. And we, as we follow Christ, we are reminded repeatedly by the Son, through the Spirit, with our brothers and sisters, we are united with Christ. We have communion with him. We have participation in him. We, we, we proclaim it. We celebrate it. We enjoy it. It is a means of grace. It is a way that God uses for his grace to be conferred upon his people, just like we preach the word every week. It is a means of grace. It, the preaching is the primary means of grace. We are not the Roman Catholic Church. The, math is not the, the mass is not the center of everything else. It is the word but the word also proclaims the visible sign of the gospel that we approach each week. And so we take it, proclaiming it until he comes. And it's, if you have not come, it is a sweet time of fellowship and encouragement with the saints every week. And I urge you to come together with us. Because one of the things that really struck me this week in my study was that Throughout church history, when the Roman Catholic Church continued to take more and more power, when the priests would exalt themselves and oppress the people, the people could not take the meal because they were afraid of spilling the blood of Jesus. They withheld the cup from the people. They would have to invent new doctrine to say that his body and blood is in this little wafer. 
and so you can only have this. The priests are getting drunk back behind the scenes, but you just have the bread. One of the most, one of the most exciting times for those in the early Reformation was when they got to come together and take the body and the blood, the bread and the cup together. It was a celebration because for hundreds of years, you couldn't unless you were a priest. It was something that they desired and longed for and, and they guarded. This is why the debate was so fierce between Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and the, all the different factions in between. Because this is the proclamation and nourishment, the proclamation of the gospel and nourishment to the saints. But I think because we can freely do it, we take it for granted. Because we could, we have the freedom in this country. You've got people taking orange juice and goldfish communion at home and completely uh, misusing this purpose. This is for the church. This is for the church to be, to gather, to be uplifted, to be encouraged. We don't want to lose the joy and the wonder and the awe of it. So it will not become mundane here. And this is why I want to take this entire sermon to focus on this. So um, William Kiffin says that baptism is the sacrament of spiritual birth. And that communion is the sacrament of spiritual growth and nourishment. So I want to close with the London Baptist Baptist Confessions, paragraph one. I think this summary is beautiful. And this means of grace language, the nourishment of the saints is consistent throughout all the confessions. This is chapter 30, paragraph one. Uh, I could not say it better myself, so I'm going to read this and then we're going to prepare to approach the table. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the, the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all the duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. I've given you the explanation of the table. As the deacons bring the elements up, we're going to respond by approaching the table. There is no way I could preach on this and not take afterwards. So I'm going to give you a few moments to go before the Lord, prepare your minds and your hearts, and then I will give us instruction.